The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia. Stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoonbilled sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and I'm going to start with some exciting news from the ABA. Uh, Every year, we like to honor members of the birding community with ABA awards. We have several of them for things like contributions to regional ornithology, birding literature, education and conservation, lots of options, lots of great people over the years that have received these awards. And we recently announced the 2018 class of recipients, and there are some, some names among them that you will probably recognize. First among those was Debbie Shearwater, whose name has been synonymous with West Coast pelagic birding for decades, and not just because it is a bird, a pelagic bird. She was famously the inspiration for the character Annie Ocklet in the Big Year movie. Uh, there's arguably no birder in North America that has been more influential in introducing offshore birding to the masses than Debbie. Uh, now, these days, there are lots of pelagic operators doing cool things, finding amazing birds out in the open ocean. But the very first time I ever heard of pelagic birding, it was with Debbie's name attached. And I imagine that I am not alone among North American birders uh, because of that. I, I can even remember where it was. It was in Pete Dunn's classic you know, quasi-big year narrative, The Feather Quest, which was my first introduction to a lot of aspects of birding culture. If you haven't read it, it's well worth your time. Uh, anyway, Debbie features in one of the chapters. Other recipients include Alan Smith of Avonlea, Saskatchewan, who has done a ton of great work with bird research and bird finding on the Prairie Provinces, and Daphne Gimmel, who has been an advocate and contributor to bird studies in Puerto Rico, both parts of North America that are probably underbirded and underappreciated. All three received the Ludlow Griscom Award for Contributions to Regional Ornithology. The fourth recipient was Denver Holt, one of the continent's most influential owl researchers who has for 30 years been doing on the ground work with owls, especially in the American West. He is a prolific writer and an in-demand guide, a tireless educator, in short, precisely the kind of person that the Chandler Robbins Award for Conservation and Education was created to honor. Uh, This was a great awards class. It's hard to go wrong when you're honoring people in our community who are doing great things. We, We definitely have a lot of them. If you know anyone who you think deserves one of these awards, please nominate them. All members in good standing are able to nominate birders in their communities. You can find out more at aba.org slash aba hyphen awards. On the show today, have you heard about the Mandarin duck in Central Park? I I have some thoughts. And they are, notably, maybe interestingly, not the same thoughts I had when it first turned up. But first, the study of migration has been rocked in recent years by the proliferation of tiny geotransmitting devices that birds can actually wear, but there's so much more than that that is possible. I talk 21st century ornithology with the inventor of these devices and the CEO of Cellular Tracking Technologies, Mike Lanzone. That is right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of November 2018. 
I'm going to focus on three birds this time around. Surprising, surprisingly, none of them are first records, though that might be the first time that's happened in this space. But all three are very rare in the ABA area. The first comes from Michigan, where a spotted red shank was found in a roadside marsh in Washtenaw County near Ann Arbor. This is surprisingly the second record for Michigan, but the first was a generation or so ago. Uh, it stuck around for about a week, which was quite surprising for a vagrant shorebird. Spotted red shank is wide-ranging in Eurasia, similar in size and shape to greater yellow legs, though with red shanks, obviously, instead of yellow ones. There's no real clear pattern of vagrancy for this species, no bountiful records in Alaska like the others. It just sort of turns up randomly, though notably one was seen in Indiana in 2013. In Newfoundland, a gray heron was discovered at Renews on the Avalon Peninsula. This is about the 10th record for the ABA area. About half of them come from Newfoundland. It's actually the second for that province this fall, though the first one was well offshore. A gray heron is the old world equivalent of great blue heron and as common over there as great blue is over here. They are generally a bit chunkier with a shorter, thicker neck and white thighs instead of rusty red ones. Also, some birders at the Lower Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival got to see a roadside hawk that has been seen at several locations in Hidalgo County this week. Uh, it's either one bird that's moving around a lot or there's more than one in the area. Both are possible. Uh, roadside hawk is widespread in the neotropics. It is the default mid-sized raptor in a lot of places. The last ABA area records come from 2005, and there were at least three individuals then. So it's not hard to believe that there is you know, more than one down there now. In the past, they have stuck around for a while, so we'll see if it or they do so again. That was a quick roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That's blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash ABA Rare, or you can follow the Rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. One of the more exciting aspects of birding and bird science in the 21st century has been the reveal of a lot of secrets of bird movements and migration, and much of that new information has been the result of technology, namely increasingly small trackers that are fitted to various bird species that enable scientists and, and also those of us on the sidelines to follow along where, where these birds are going. Mike Lanzone is the co-founder and CEO of Cellular Tracking Technologies, the folks that develop the devices and figure out the best way to use them. He was also the recipient of the ABA's Chandler Robbins Award for contributions to education and conservation in 2017. Uh, thanks for joining me, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you've been, you've been at this for more than a decade now. Um, you know, what motivated you to begin using this specific technology to track bird movements? You know, it kind of started with the Golden Eagle project we were in, involved in, and we started, there's actually three of us, my, my wife and, and Dr. Todd Kastner, who, who basically wanted to track eastern golden eagles, which, you know, at that point, you know, remember back, you know, over a decade ago where a lot of what was known was, you know, was just kind of, there was a couple birds that were tracked, and prior to that, they thought, well, these are just vagrants that are ending up at hawk watches here in the fall, and then... You know, some of these spring hawk watches are like, well, these are a lot more than just, you know, <laughs> scattered birds over here. And so, you know, and, and we didn't really know what the population was. So really kind of we were in, in the learning stages just when wind power started to, to become prevalent in the east. And so we really wanted to, to know if there was any negative effects uh, between, you know, golden eagles and wind power in, in the east. And, you know, we started using just general Argos tracking and realized very quickly that, the number of points that we that we needed to collect was just you know way above the capacity that the, the Argo satellites could provide, and you know I, I had an idea to do cellular tracking, and 
tried to get other people to work with me to, to develop it. At that point, I worked for Carnegie Museum of Natural History, and being a nonprofit, there was no money for, for us to develop it. Everyone else wanted large sums of money to, to actually develop anything. So, you know, I've been de- developing all kinds of microphones for quite a number of, of years for for recording flight calls. And so I'm like, you know, I'm just going to do it myself. And so so I uh, put together the, the, the first device that, you know, this was now like 14 years ago put, or 13 years ago that actually, you know, recorded GPS locations and sent them over the cell network. You know, then kind of refine that down to a point where we could start collecting uh, high resolution data. So like 12 years ago, we all of a sudden were collecting data at over 240 times the amount of data that can be collected on any device and then send all that over the over the cellular network. And, hmm. you know, the only way that was possible, you know, back then was you had to recover the transmitter. And, you know, maybe an albatross, it's easy. You can walk up and grab it off an albatross. But a golden eagle, it's not very easy to, to recapture <laughs> a golden eagle. So. Yeah, they move around a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you recapture them? Did you did you find out where these birds were congregating? They for you know, as much as golden eagles do congregate and, and trapping them? Yeah, so so we you know, we are lucky in, in that, you know, we lived in central Pennsylvania and there's a lot of great spots on the ridges there that the eagles are normally very low. We lived right near a, a spot called Allegheny Front, which during uh, the spring and fall, but especially during the during the fall, large numbers of golden eagles will will migrate through there. And there's a high proportion of adults that moved through there too. So we started, uh, you know, trapping them there and, and putting uh, units on. And, you know, we had pretty high success, but there's a lot of days where, you know, you get 30, 40, 50 golden eagles going over and, and they're just in the movement. You know, they don't care about whatever's on the ground. They don't want to eat. They just are moving through. So we needed a different way to, to try to capture them. So we started a camera trapping project. Hmm. You know, we realized very quickly that, man, we were getting golden eagles all over the place, all over <laughs> the east, even in places where nobody knew there was golden eagles before, like Alabama. And huh. so we figured out that, that we could, you know, travel around all winter and catch golden eagles on their wintering grounds, which was also good, too, because then we could have a, a nice sample size all over the east in different states where they were wintering. So that's pretty much how we, how we were able to capture them. And it was really nice because catching them during migration, you don't really know where they're going to end up. You can right. catch all the birds from like Virginia and not have any other samples from the east. So we were able to get a nice scattering of birds from, you know, over 12 eastern states capturing them in the winter. And so that's pretty much how we were able to get them out. Yeah, that's nuts. I know, I know I live in North Carolina and we have golden eagles from time to time out in the eastern part of the state. And there's always been this question, you know, where do these birds come from? Um, yeah. Are they vagrants from the west? It turns out so you have discovered that they're those birds that breed in breed in eastern canada and and kind of scatter really widely across the east it's it's fascinating stuff yeah and in in fact in in north in the mountains of north carolina we caught the largest golden eagle that's ever been recorded in the in the u.s oh really you know pretty pretty neat yeah so how do these devices work what what network are you tapping into so we can basically connect to any cellular network in the world so we have you know, over 200 different providers all over the world so that the devices can travel anywhere in, in the world and connect seamlessly. And in the U.S., you know, that's, you know, for providers like Verizon and AT&T and T-Mobile. In Canada, there's there's three or four di- different networks they can connect to. And so wherever they, they go, they check the cellular networks and, you know, connect. It's pretty much like 
you know, just like an iPhone or anything else, um, collecting all kinds of, you know, very high resolution telemetry data plus accelerometry, which on your iPhone, you can kind of, you can download apps and, it, you know, it just shows you kind of how your phone's position. And that's basically, you know, what that accelerometer is doing, recording behavioral kinds of information, you know, how many times is the eagle flapping and that kind of stuff. And it's all sent huh. right over the cellular network. So you're able to tell exactly how many times that they, they flap their wings while they're flying. That's right. That's amazing. And it's, you know, as like, you know, just at a hawk watch, you, you know, you make observations like, you know, hey, it looks like golden eagles are gliding a lot more than a bald eagle. And, you know, we were able, actually able to back that up by, you know, looking <laughs> at bald angles, the golden eagles, and looking at ex- the exact number of wing, wing flaps. You know, it was, it was pretty, pretty staggering when I first saw the results come out of that. And things like, you know, snowy owls, you know, looking at, you know, their flapping behavior right before they, they hit a duck. Um, on the water, <laughs> pretty pretty neat. I mean, that's the that's, that's one of the craziest things about this whole this whole project, this whole initiative that has amazed me is that it's answering questions that you didn't even know you had. Like, is is it a research question to know how much more does a golden eagle flap than a bald eagle? Well, maybe not, but man, that's such cool information to know. It is, and I get that a lot because everyone's like, well, <laughs> "Why should we care?" You know how they're flapping, and the biggest reason is because how they flap, how they're using air thermals to move uh, really dictates, you know, a lot about looking at things like, you know, wind power. How high are they flying? Are they flapping through the, these zones? You know, and that right. kind of relates yeah. to the direct question of where exactly are they at risk? And so these behavioral questions, you know, they, they seem like, okay, well, this is just science and it really doesn't affect the conservation of a lot of these species, but it, but it really does. And even using some of this stuff on other species like cranes uh, and other things where they're heavily, you know, persecuted by farmers in, in some places in the world, mm-hmm. you know, knowing that they actually fed in a field or where they're feeding, that we can actually inform farmers and say, hey, they're not actually eating all your grain. They're, you know, they're doing other things in, in those fields and, you know, or they're splitting up their, their time or looking at conservation uh, with any species of, of, of waterfowl, looking at, you know, hey, these are the fields or, or the wetlands that they're using more than others that they're feeding mm-hmm. in. This is the proportion of time they're actually feeding. So all the, this kind of a high-end accelerometry can really inform a lot more than, than, than you think, more than just the cool factor. And it is cool too, but... <laughs> Your highest profile initiative so far is probably Project Snowstorm, uh, tracking snowy owls, which began during the big snowy owl invasion of, was it 2013? It was, yep. And has been pretty much going on ever since, right? Right. What have you learned about snowy owls that has surprised you? You know, for starters, just everything that we started getting back was new. I think the first owl that we put a transmitter on in in the first week collected more data than had ever been collected on snowy owls. Ever, (laughs) you know, and and for starters, it confirmed a lot of things that we thought, but had no real data to back up with their general habitat usage. But but then being able to look into the lives of owls that are using open fields, um, like in you know central Wisconsin or something like like that, and looking at their habitat usage throughout the night versus an airport versus the Great Lakes, um, you know, and, and one of the really cool things there was you know the fact that they're using ice flows, and so they're floating along with the current. And so you can actually see them fly out in the, into the lake and follow along. And it's just like, oh, they're drifting to the west for like 20 miles. <laughs> and all of a sudden they fly out a little further and they're drifting west. And all of a sudden the wind changes and now they're drifting to the north. And 
you know, they're just like hanging out, waiting till they get close enough to a group of sea ducks, and yeah, then all of a sudden, you know, the sea ducks are surprised. But to like altitude, I mean, nobody had ever been able to record altitude data on owls ever. And so looking at how they're moving relative to topography, for instance, for instance, right. and, you know, that kind of stuff, just we are in awe just looking at that and Snowy's using thermals. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, something that you just don't ever really get a chance to, to, to see out in the, in the field. What sort of shocked me was how far they go, like the owls that kind of hang out along the coast, uh, because the dunes are quite similar to the tundra where they spend the rest of the year. But how far out into the, over the water, like out into Chesapeake Bay or even out over the open ocean to search for sea ducks, how far they go was shocking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nobody's definitely do not seem to have any fear of, of water whatsoever. I think it was maybe the winter of 13, 14 that there was several snowies that ended up in Bermuda and, you know, and yeah. or these random pictures of snowy owls sitting on, on buoys out of the continental shelf, you know, and, um, but yeah, they're very strong, fearless flyers. You know, they go wherever they want to go. <laughs> they're almost like a, you know, cross between Giro Falcon and uh, Great Horned Owl. <laughs> yeah. Know, very powerful owl, but, you know, their, their habits and even their hunting style is very, uh, falcon like uh, especially you know deer falcons the way they fly in very quickly and and punch their prey um, there's some really cool videos but snowy owls are just you know they're pretty pretty awesome i'm sure that you know having your technology out in the field year after year after year through project snowstorm has really allowed you to make improvements on it how is how is the technology improved through project snowstorm yeah so snowy owls i mean they pre- presented a lot of problems that we didn't you know initially know going into this and you know we 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 knew tracking owls is more difficult but snowies we figured out that you know they're out in the open all the time they're going to be getting Mm -hmm. lots of light but a couple things we ran into initially was snowy owls are like sundials i mean if you if you see them they (laughs) seem to move with the sun and they're always facing the sun and i don't know why that is but um you know obviously the transmitter is sitting on their back so it was shaded much of the time. So, you know, the power budgets were all very different from, from what we thought that they would be. They yeah. were like, oh, these owls are going to have plenty of energy to do anything we wanted. So, you know, I, I think one of the things we were able to refine immediately was how do we really optimize power usage? And we, we had thought we did that really well, you know, and we were, you know, with all these other species. But Snowy's kind of forced us to kind of go to the next level of being ultra-conservative of how we use our power and, you know, still trying to collect the most data that we could. That kind of thing, you know, just learning about feather coverage with, with mm-hmm. owls and, you know, which relates to lots of other, other species. But, you know, that will help us get sm- transmitters smaller and smaller and use smaller batteries to, you know, because the limiting factor for most telemetry is the weight of the batteries. And so huh. if we can, snowy owls really help refine that so that we can actually start using these things on much smaller species now right. because of snowy owls. And, you know, so that's, that's, that's pretty awesome. So how small do you think that these things can get? What size critter, what size bird do you think you could put one of these tracking devices on? So right now, cellular units, you know, you can get down to the size of, of about, you know, some exhibitors, um, you can get to some larger shorebirds, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, we actually have some 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 devices that we're that we're prototyping now that can go much smaller than that. You know, but we have a lot of devices now. The cool thing is, is a lot of the stuff that we're making now 
can talk to cellular units that are much smaller, you know, all the way down to warbler-sized units where you have golden eagle or snowy owl that's that's up up in northern Canada, and they're flying along, and there's a black pole warbler talking to a golden eagle <laughs> that's flying o- o- over. And it, the golden eagle is like a living satellite that you're beaming this information to. <laughs> that's correct, and you know, so so <laughs> all the animals and. We're, we're calling it the Internet of Wildlife. So basically, yeah, right. we're, you know, wildlife talks to each other and can transmit any data and can kind of work in conjunction with and bridge the weaknesses of certain transmitters, you know, that too hmm. light to have certain features. And you can use other transmitters to, to collect that information from the smaller units and, and then send all that when it gets back to the, you know, back to service. So, yeah, so yeah it's really, uh, really pretty neat. What is the smallest the smallest animal that you've been able to get any of these trackers on? Any tracker in general or the cellular units? Anything that you've made. So far, the lightest thing has been, you know, warblers. So mm-hmm. that's pretty much the, the smallest species we, we're, we're putting stuff on right, right. right now. And we have, we have them, them going all, all over the U.S. on, on different species of warblers and, and, and overseas, too, on a lot of uh, sylvids and other species of hmm. uh, warblers o- over there. So, yeah. That's pretty wild. A, a lot of this information is the sort of thing that, you know, researchers are particularly interested in, you know, knowing the routes that these birds take, the habitats that they use along the way, all really important stuff. How can hobby birders use these findings besides, you know, just sort of gawking at how crazy it is? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, obviously looking at maps and, and knowing where they go kind of doesn't inform where we might want to go birding. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, for instance, I, I mean, a lot of the the, the best known known places now uh, for looking at, at some of these species were, you know, first discovered through telemetry, and hmm. some of those spots aren't disclosed yet, which you know for endangered species, but you know it has informed conservation, you know, within those areas too. But you know, one of the things that we're working on right now is is a device that can kind of inform bird watchers uh, for where and how birds are, are migrating over, and so it records. Huh and kind of synthesizes all this tracking information so you can kind of pull up your computer. You'll have one of these devices sitting in your house, and it will basically say, here's what migrated over your house last night, and huh. and here's, you know, here's all the, the audio from over your house last night, <laughs> and here's what happened in your neighborhood and in your state, and combining that with eBird data and other, other uh, sources of bird data, uh, we really hope to kind of you know, leverage this as a big citizen science project where you can actually use this data to, to really in, inform, you know, how far birds are moving during migration. And and then, you know, on the ground, I mean, Cornell's done, done a great job over the years of kind of leveraging this kind of, you know, citing information, you know, from Eber and, and, and others for prediction al- algorithms. And this will strengthen that because now we'll know exactly how far these birds are moving and, and all that. So I think, you know, as far as you know, strengthening the the tools we we have to go out and, and see birds from from that land all the way to you know just citizen science. You know, being involved in learning more about migration and how birds are moving and how far they're moving and 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 all that. And I think you know it'd also be a great tool to get people interested that may be interested in in some aspects but not all. But you know, kind of getting people you know really in, involved in this kind of technology and and just the application of, of, of it be a, a good tool to get people in, in, interested in birds. Yeah. Could you ask like your, um, your little home microphone device, like what birds flew over your house last night? That's, yeah, that's <laughs> what you want to do. I mean, basically, you know, hey Alexa, 
what <laughs> flew over my house last night or hey Alexa what's that singing in my backyard right now and <laughs> right <laughs> you know we're we're getting there <laughs> yeah 15 <laughs> black-billed cuckoos yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's nuts Mike Lanzone is the CEO of Cellular Tracking Technologies. They make all those cool little devices that go on birds that tell us where they've been and where they're going. Uh, Project Snowstorm is starting back up this winter, the sixth year they've been tracking snowy owls using Mike's technology. You can follow along with all that at projectsnowstorm.org. Thanks again, Mike. It's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me. Did you guys hear about the big rare bird news in New York's Central Park last week? If not... Uh, allow me to let the real deal media the tell you about corner it. corner of Central Park is a mandarin duck, a bird usually found in Asia. He's right down there in that little nook, and he is a sight to see. A dazzling mandarin duck has become the hottest attraction in New York City, drawing a crowd as if it were a celebrity sighting, even paparazzi snapping away with their telephoto lenses. Well, it is not unusual to see huge crowds in Central Park, but it is unusual when it's over a duck. Right now, people are flocking to the park to see a rare mandarin duck. That's the key, because there's a lot of yeah. ducks in Central Park, but you don't see mandarin ducks. And uh, where it came from is still a mystery, and that guess adds to the fascination. Oh, yes. Eyewitness News reporter A.J. Ross, uh, live in Central Park with more on what all the fascination is It is, is about. true that no one knows where it came from, a fact that the local media seems fascinated by, but... No birder that is actually interviewed has any question about that. Yes, its origins are a mystery in the sense that we don't know which captive facility it came from, but it you know, has a plastic band, so we know it was in someone's hand at some point. It didn't come from China, despite the heavy implication. I feel like the duck's mysterious origins are something that the narrative makers and the media are especially keen to take advantage of, like, say, Harry Smith of CBS News. Is he lost? Was he stolen? Might this be an example of foul play? Credit where due, the laughing mallard in response to the joke is chef's kiss. It's perfect. Uh, breathless media accounts aside, it, it has been fascinating to watch this Mandarin duck mania take hold. The New York Times was the first to cover it, and now national news outlets are on this story. It's the sort of human interest fun story that I imagine they did a lot of in the past, but I haven't felt like they've been able to do these days, so I, I get why they jumped on this one. When I first saw the New York Times story, which was headlined, A Mandarin Duck Mysteriously Appears in Central Park, the cynic in me was the first to respond. My first thought was, wow, whittle they hear there in every zoo in the country. It was a sort of a silly story, too, wherein they, they play up the mystery but interview a birder, David Barrett, who runs the Manhattan Bird Alert, and he gave three completely plausible explanations for why this bird would be here now, uh, all, all captive, because of course, and, and again, it's wearing a plastic band. And that was sort of where I, where I left it. How many of us out there have come across a mandarin duck in a public, urban-type place? I, you know, I bet it's a fair number. Flash forward a few days, and this mandarin duck is huge. It's on the TV. People are going out of their way to see it and photograph it. It is like I am looking through a funhouse mirror at twitching culture. You know, I was finally on the outside looking in. I think I, I finally understood what it's like to be a non-birder, to watch thousands of people descend on a rarity, you know, something that, that's sort of interesting, but also kind of frivolous. And again, my first inclination was to roll my eyes at it and then to get a little frustrated because I am sort of torn between the desire to see the public at large really get birding and the desire to see them get it you know, the right way, assuming, of course, that my way is the right way. You know, boy, if you like this mandarin duck, wait till you get a load of this wood duck. And bonus, it's actually supposed to be here. 
Or maybe I could interest you in a northern pintail. Mayhaps this canvas back. But then I started actually listening to the people seeing this thing. And I started recognizing a lot of what I like about birding in their voices as they describe the experience of, of finding and seeing this mandarin duck. And there was a lot of great stuff online, a lot of great stuff being written about it as well that just rang really true to me, even if it was about this rehabbed farm duck. It doesn't look real. It looks like somebody painted a rubber ducky. It's incredible. I don't think, pictures don't do it justice. I think the colors are just so vibrant. Yeah, it's and so especially like with the fall foliage, it's beautiful. And we followed the Twitter feed of like where it was to come here. Yeah. We obviously thought we'd never get to see one because they're native to like China. So when we found out it was here, we like all freaked out and got really excited. And so we just sort of rushed here after school to see it. And we were all blown away because it's so beautiful. We just followed the crowd. And it was like, oh, that's, that's pretty. We don't, because we heard like, you know, people don't see that often. How many of us have heard something like that about some you know, mud-colored stint or a drab fall warbler? The Kirtland's warbler that was found in Central Park earlier this year got a sort of similar response, but it, it wasn't the same. And yeah, from our perspective, the Kirtland's was undoubtedly a quote-unquote better bird. But for a great number of people, it's not a mandarin duck. You know, maybe the duck part played a role, but I get it. You know, I get why people would want to see this you know, inarguably spectacular bird in the wild, so much as Central Park passes as wild, but it's easily viewable, easily accessed in the middle of the most famous park in arguably the greatest city on the planet. So what kind of person wouldn't want to see that bird? What kind of person wouldn't want to experience that sort of coming together of humanity around this, around this waterfowl? And that's how sort of I, I came around to it. I, I think it's pretty great that people are excited about this thing. One of my favorite things about birding is that it puts us in touch with this world that goes on outside of our human stuff that, that often feels like we are the only ones to see. I think a lot of naturalists feel that way. And, and it's a pretty amazing world. And that's, that's why we're all here. You know, that's why you were listening to a bird-themed podcast. It is a curtain over a window that most people sort of keep drawn you know, maybe people are pulling it open a little bit to see this duck. Maybe they'll maybe they'll realize what else is out there. This is so cool. Look at how beautiful it is. You know what? It really is. You enjoy that bird, New York. And because it's Manhattan, if I don't see an off-Broadway production of My Fair Ducky by 2020, I will be extremely disappointed. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. You've heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. We are a membership organization, and the best way to support this podcast is you join the American Birding Association. Not only are you helping us do what we do, but you're also helping to build a better birding community. You also get Birding Magazine out of the deal. It's not a bad deal. Get more information at aba.org slash join. If you're feeling especially motivated to help out, you can leave a rating or review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to get your feedback. It helps make the show better. And those ratings and reviews help people find us. Thanks for that. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His attempts to persuade Apple to change the name of their artificial intelligence helper from Siri to Cirrus hit a snag when the AOS changed the genus of water thrushes to Parkesia. Technical production is by John Lowry. He says, you know, why stop at transmitters? He wants to see a GoPro on a hummingbird. And whether that means we make the GoPro smaller or the hummingbird bigger, he doesn't care. Additional tech assistance comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They have a lot of problems with these new self-driving cars. Are they dangerous? Will they remove the need for mass transit? How do you run a breeding bird survey? 
big, important questions. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We're working hard with the folks at Cornell Lab of Ornithology to create a virtual assistant for eBird. Seeks to make the whole bird recording thing hands-free by allowing you to speak your sightings and you know, it tabulates them all for you. If you report a flagged bird, it will scream pics or it didn't happen at you until you were tempted to toss your phone into the nearest marsh. But it does prevent stringing. Questions, comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>